Well, amen, and it is great to have you with us as we start a new journey into the Song of Solomon. As you saw as you came in today, it's rated PG-13. This is a sweet book. This is a direct book. This is a beautiful book, but it's unlike anything in the entire Bible. Quick overview, you know, the Bible really begins with marriage in a garden. And it's this idealized picture of marriage in a garden with no betrayal, no mistakes, no misunderstandings. And the Bible ends with the ideal, a wedding banquet with Jesus as the groom and us as his bride in the ultimate garden, heaven come to earth. And so as we study this book, it's going to give us a picture, an idealized picture of what love can be, what we should aspire toward. We also need to realize that we don't live in that garden, and we don't live in that garden. We live in this garden. We live in a garden between two gardens. And so the garden we have has weeds in it that you've got to pull out. It's got to be watered. It's got to be fertilized. It's got to be retilled. And so in this series, we're going to hear an idealized view of romantic love that we should aspire to, but also an acknowledgement that we're going to need different tools in order to cultivate our own garden as we even begin to lean in that direction. As you hear about the passion of this couple throughout the book, and maybe you're single here today and saying, I don't know if I'm going to get anything out of this. And just the idea of that might make you sad. I want you to know that there are going to be principles in here about how relationships work, how to become ready for marriage, how to see what you're looking for in a marriage to set yourself up for success. Others of us have been married, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you're going to see this incredible idealized picture of love and you might be sad. <laughs> well, I don't have that. I don't know if you've had that in 30 years. And so again, this is going to be something we aspire to as we're tilling the ground to say, hey, let's re-engage the garden and pull out some weeds and recultivate and grow something beautiful. To do that, this book has a lot of different views. So let me just give you four kind of quick overviews of ways people have perceived this book. Number one, some people have over-spiritualized this book. They said it's not really about erotic love. It's not really about romantic love. When, 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 the, when the bride and groom talk about passionately kissing each other or, or, or holding each other's breasts, there's actually people, Origen, Augustine, even Martin Luther, who say what we're really talking about here is Jesus and the church. Hmm, really? Yeah, on the two breasts of the Old Testament and the New Testament, Really? So I just reject this view. This is not what's going on here. This shows more about the, the, the uncomfortableness of the reader than it does about the book itself. On the other side, there's a view of this book that overweights passion and intimacy. And says your whole life is determined by the quantity or quality of your intimate life. It turns intimacy into an idol. You can underweight it, but you can also overweight it. And then your spouse gets crushed under the weight of your expectations because your whole life is defined by that. Because the Bible will just incredibly celebrate erotic love in a way that will make you blush. And then say in the New Testament, and as amazing as it is, you can live without it. Jesus did, Paul did, there's a gift of singleness. A friend of mine who was single said, it's, it's a gift of singleness, can I return it? <laughs> that doesn't feel like a gift. The third thing is that many people overcomplicate this book and they say it's not just written by Solomon, it's not one poem. After all, the guy's not qualified. By the time he dies, he's got 700 concubines and 300 wives. Not quite the author you pick for a book on monogamy. But I'm going to try and show you that I do not think it's multiple poems written by multiple people. It's one poem by Solomon written about his bride 
He's married to her probably 7 to 13 years when he was still pursuing God before he falls off and really heads in a bad direction in all different ways. So I'm going to take the view that this book is an overjoy book. It's about the joys of erotic love. And it's really about not finding a soulmate, but becoming a soulmate through romantic love. Because you can always try and find a soulmate, but your spouse changes four or five times while you're married. So even if you find them, they're going to change. So, so, the, so the idea of trying to find someone perfect is just a, a fool's errand. Instead, how do I find somebody that is willing to adapt to me and I adapt to them? And through the seasons of marriage, we become each other's soulmate over and over and over again. This book also has multiple outlines. When I preached it 18 years ago, I used a different outline. Every outline has different problems and solutions. Having studied this for last year, I think this best explains what the book's about. It's like a giant wedding cake. So I believe this book is patterned after a seven-day Jewish wedding feast. And that each night, at the end of each chapter, you'll see, or chapter divisions are a little off, but uh, at the end of each night, you're going to see them make love, and then the next day make love, make, and that's kind of how each day ends. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds, it rhymes ideas. So each of the days rhyme with each other. Day one, the challenge to keep love in marriage. Now strangely, there's a day eight. Jewish weddings don't have day eight, so we're going to get to that. And it's all about the resurrection power that keeps love alive. A love that, that defeats the grave is how you're going to be able to do this. Second chapter, day two, new love in the garden of, of marriage is going to rhyme with day seven, renewing love in the garden of marriage. There's two dream sequences in here that kind of take us forward to a time that they're not getting along and their appetites aren't matched up and they're bruising each other because one wants to have intimacy more than the other. So two dreams. The first dream is day three, overcoming fears in intimacy. It's going to rhyme with day five, overcoming differences in intimacy between two of you. Then it's going to see the power of our words. Day four, speaking into your spouse's heart. And day six, affirming your spouse with your words. But all of this points to the very center of the book. How are we going to do this? you got to keep God in the center. So let me show you from a poetic perspective, the exact same phrase is used over and over and over again. I know the font's small. I'm not trying to have you see the actual words. Just look at the pattern, A, B, C, D. It's an A, B, C, D all the way through L pattern, chapters 1 through 4. Then the exact same words and exact same phrases are used in opposite order, chapter 5 through 8. So I think this is clearly written by one person. It all syncs up beautifully. If you zoom out and you see all of that in a poetic perspective, it all points to what you need is in the middle of this book. It's the one time God shows up in the middle of the book. In the middle of the book, right when they're making love at the end of day four or five, when he's in his garden, and the garden becomes a metaphor for their bodies, it becomes a metaphor for their love. When they're, when they're in each other's garden, a voice cries out, the voice of God in the bedroom while they're making love, and it says, he says, I've come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. And then another voice speaks in and says, eat, oh friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply, oh beloved one. Which might feel weird that God's watching you make love. But God is actually saying, I gave you this gift. It was designed to bring joy into you. Drink up, enjoy the gift I have for you. So there's a quick outline of where we're going. Today we'll cover chapter one. And we're going to look at the idea that marital love is a flame that must be maintained with fuel. The fire burns out if you don't keep putting logs on the fire. It needs to be maintained with fuel, but also needs to be contained in the fireplace. That God designed marital intimacy to be in the form and to be in the container of the fireplace. It's a powerful fire, not to be used in premarital sex or extramarital sex, but to be contained in the fireplace, and that's how it best works. So I'll look at three ways to fan the flame today. 
First way is to meditate on your spouse's strengths. You know, when you first get married, this is not easy, this is not hard to do. The dopamine in your brain, the serotonin in your brain, people who fall in love immediately. Hey, tell me about him. He's perfect. <laughs> really? Because I've met him. He doesn't seem, oh, he's perfect. What, what's she like? She's wonderful. Does she have any weaknesses? Not that I can think of. You know, and you're like. So what comes naturally during the infatuation stage, God gives you those chemicals and that bonding agent to help. What becomes natural in the early stages becomes a habit to maintain love later on is to say, you know what, I used to meditate on my spouse's strengths. Now I think about how they irritated me and why did they do that? And that's just so ridiculous. That's not the right way to do it. How do we meditate on our spouse's strengths? Interesting. Opening book of the Bible. Opening book of this book. The Song of Songs, which is saying he wrote 1,500 poems and songs, according to 1 Kings. This was the best one he ever wrote, is what it says. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, which is why I think Solomon wrote it. And here's the opening line of a book of the Bible. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Whoa, this is not my, this is not the church I grew up in. A book of the Bible starts off with let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Because of the, the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. And you're going to see in a lot of different ways, there's this hide-and-seek relationship that goes on throughout the book with these garden metaphors about the Garden of Eden. But even the grammar, you can see them growing close. He starts off third person, let him kiss me. Then he goes to second person, your love is better than wine. And then first person, draw me away. You just see the closeness drawing in, even in the grammar. You're also going to see references to taste, smells, touch all five senses throughout the book. One thing she says here is, I'm drawn to you because when I think of your cologne, how you smell, it reminds me that your, your cologne reminds me of who you are. Your name is like an ointment. Your name is like a cologne. Now, in Old Testament times, your name was your character. So when you spoke of someone's name, you're speaking of their character. I'm not just, we don't just have chemistry, I think you're attractive, you have character and I'm drawn to who you are. And this is really a lesson here, whether you're single or single again, or helping guide your, your adult kids as they're looking for spouses. You'll hear somebody say, what do you think of him? Oh, he's a hunk. A hunk of what? Right, that's the question, a hunk of what? Because chemistry is temporary. Character is what sustains you over time. Can you be humble? Can you own your own problems? Can you forgive? Can you reconcile? That's what makes a relationship. And you can build chemistry, but that fire burns out pretty quick, and you don't have the fuel of character to make things last. And not only that, she says, your name, your character is ointment poured forth. Therefore, other people love you. Other people recognize your character. You ever met somebody who first started dating some jerk? And they come up and you meet him like, that guy's a jerk. And afterwards, she says, what would you think of him? Um, what do you think of him? He's awesome. And you're like, well, I, I kind of saw a few red flags. No, 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 I, he sometimes comes across that way. But I can see his secret character that nobody else can see. <laughs> right? It's red flags. And so if you're dating 
or you have kids who are dating, I know this is very hard to give feedback when they don't want it, but as much as you can, especially if you're single again, see if other people who don't have dopamine flowing through their brains can affirm the character of the person you're dating. Then draw me away. Draw me away. See, the Bible describes human beings made in three images like God. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. And in marriage, God designed the, a triune being to connect with a triune being. Which means God wants us to connect on a spiritual level, what the Bible calls oneness. At a friendship level, which is our friendship love, it's what we want, what we think, what we feel, that's our soul. Understanding each other's need for attention, appreciation, respect, the need to feel a blessing. And then physical closeness. And usually in marriage, one person in the couple is focused on another one. One's trying to drag the other one to church. How oh, do we have to go to church? And one's trying to say, will you please listen to me after work? I want to talk about my feelings. Oh, your feelings. Oh, your feelings. And the other one's like always trying to drag you to the bedroom. And I think there's a tendency in us to think that these are preferences. She prefers I listen. She prefers I, I, I hear this. He prefers th that we go to the bedroom more often. But if this is really how we're designed, and marriage is designed to connect on three levels, <clears throat> then these are not preferences, these are priorities. How do we prioritize all three aspects of our marriage? And so you know, this is important to connect soulishly and spiritually and bodily and to make that a priority. <clears throat> now with that, as we already saw, God kind of has an order of how to build your relationship. He says, I want you to build your relationships on spiritual oneness, core values, putting me at the center of your life. I want you to build your relationship with spiritual principles as the base. Then out of that, I want you to grow friendship love, understand how to meet each other's needs, understand each other, how to bless each other. And then I want you to save marital um, passion and intimacy in its full expression until after marriage. That's why I say it needs to be contained in the fireplace. And that is where bodily love is then expressed in the context of marriage. Now this is God's ideal. If you haven't followed that ideal, as I encourage you, just kind of start aiming back at that ideal. Hey, God, sorry I didn't do it right. Let's start reestablishing the triangle. Most of us, though, we do it totally different. We start off by saying, wow, do we have passion. You know what? We have passion and we have pleasure and we have such chemistry and the fire burns quick in that relationship. And then maybe we occasionally talk to each other. And, you know, honestly, there was no time to go to church. <laughs> and you wonder why those relationships burn out so fast. Right? It's because you had a fire, but no fuel. The character and the oneness to fuel that flame. And with that, you also, the reason God wants to save intimacy for marriage is because it just blinds you. This bonding agent God gave you blinds you to see who you're with until it's like, what am I doing sleeping with this guy? He's kind of a jerk. What am I doing sleeping with her? She's actually very manipulative. So God's order of doing this actually sets us up for success. And if that's true, then the larger the triangles we connect with our spouses, the greater felt love. How do we begin to expand the triangle in all three areas to grow our love? So question. What comes naturally to this couple, and maybe to you in your early days, needs to become a habit in this stage of your life? Are you meditating on your spouse's strengths? Are you trying to set aside time on your drive home before you go to bed to really think about what your spouse contributes. What are their strengths? What are their efforts? What have they done to make your home, to make your marriage, to make your life possible? What might it do to your heart if you purposely, daily, tried to meditate on your spouse's strengths against the kind of common pattern of just meditating what they do wrong? Secondly, are you creating margin in your life, not to just go, 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 collapse, 
but margin your life to prepare yourself and prioritize physical intimacy in your marriage. Say, I'm going to save some energy. I'm tired tonight, but you know, tomorrow we're going to save some energy for that. Hey, this weekend, we're going we're to go on a date night and then we're going we're to prioritize this and not just kind of let it coast away and the flame die. I was talking to a lady come to our church. She and her husband, they both were going to a Bible study here at the church about gratitude. And just every day journaling things they're grateful for. And all the things they're grateful for, they started writing out things they were grateful for about their spouse. And they just found that simple exercise helped them fall in love again. When I was in my 20s, we had a, <clears throat> a couple I really respected, Frank, uh, um, <coughs> Steve and Elaine. And they were in their 40s and they were teaching just how to sustain marriage and how to sustain your relationship. And they were like 40. You remember when you're 20, 40 seems really old? And remember, I'm thinking, like, really? People still make love at 40? Like, ooh, that's like, I can't imagine that, really? And then, then you're like, of course they do. And they would talk about keeping the flame alive and how occasionally he would kidnap her and take her to a hotel and just how you continue to woo each other and romance each other and prioritize each other. And it just stuck with me. Another guy talked about when he wants to show his wife how much he loves her, he buys her flowers, but not just buys her flowers, she, she buys flowers and sends it to work. Or sent it to some place where other people can see how esteemed she is, how beautiful she is, how, how valued she is. Just ways at which he can meditate and then find ways to express that. Now, if you're single, there's some lessons here about how to think about a spouse, how to prioritize what God wants, but also I think it's worth thinking about as I'm looking for someone of character and I'm waiting longer than I want to wait, how do I become a person of character? God, make me a person that knows how, who I am and how to give love so I'm not a gaping hole that needs to be filled with love. God, form me during this time that I'm waiting. So number one, how do we do that? Number two, fanning the flame, how do we renovate the culture's teaching on pleasure and intimacy? The culture will just totally screw us up all the different ways in which it tells us lies and distortions about God's gift. And we see her talking really honestly about that. At this point, they're kind of heading in the bedroom chamber. <clears throat> so again, remember, this is like a Broadway play. There aren't really people in the room singing with them while they're making love. But it's almost like the chorus of, the, of these women and a few other people, it's almost like the voice of truth confirming what's true whenever you hear the chorus. So the daughters of Jerusalem, it's kind of this voice, this chorus of this Broadway song, and they go, we're going to run after you. We want that too. We want to build our relationship with somebody with character. We want that kind of passion. So then the Shulamite, that's the bride, her name literally means it's the feminine of Solomon. So it's like saying Mrs. Solomon. Mrs. Solomon says, the king has brought me into his chambers. That's why I take this as their first wedding night. They're actually in the chambers. They're not there just to chat. They're there to make love. The king has brought me, present tense, into his chambers. And again, the daughters aren't really there, but the voice of truth sings, hey, we will be glad for you. We're going to rejoice in you. We'll remember your love more than wine. Almost like the, 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 the lingerie party or the girls gathering together before your wedding night. They're just, I'm so excited for you. Uh, it's going to be great. It's been awesome to see. We're great to be here. Then the Shulamite, Mrs. Solomon says, rightly do they love you. She's beginning to affirm him. She says, I am dark. We're going to find out her skin is, is darker than the typical Middle Eastern living in that time. She says, but I do understand that I'm lovely. I'm beautiful. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. I mean, my skin, and now that I'm thinking about it, it's actually pretty dark like the tents of Kedar. It's kind of more darker than most people. I kind of stand out. It, it's dark like the curtains of Solomon. And then she starts getting insecure about her body. You know, don't look upon me. She's probably undressing in front of her husband right now. And as she's seeing all her imperfections, the things don't live up to her culture's view of beauty, she says, don't look upon me. I feel dark. 
I go, what's the big deal? Everybody's dark. You're Middle Eastern. That's... Well, she goes on. She says, well, I, I'm more tan than most people. And she says, here's what happened. The sun has tanned me. That's why my skin is darker than most people. See, my, my mother's sons were angry with me. Maybe she was a stepdaughter. She's like Cinderella. And her, her, her evil stepbrothers made her work in the vineyard. So she worked outside tilling the field all the time. They made me the keeper of the vineyard. And because of that, my, my, my muscles are stronger. My, my body's more built. And it just doesn't look the way I want it to look. Now, what's interesting is in that culture, if you were more tan, it meant you were more impoverished because you had to work the fields all the time. If you were less tan, it was a sign that you were indoors and, and you had more comfort and more wealth. So that's why culture is so crazy. That's why culture is a terrible way to determine beauty. Because in one culture, to be tan is good. And in this culture, to be tan is b- bad. In some cultures, to be skinny is unbelievable. You're never skinny enough. Other cultures, skinniness is ugliness. In fact, in order to be overweight or to be um, well endowed in some respect is to show that you have wealth because you have enough money to buy more food. My point, culture will drive us crazy. It's no wonder our daughters and our wives and any of us can ever find our identity in God because culture just keeps changing the rules. And she's just so honest here saying, you know what, my body doesn't look the way I want it to look. And then she refers to her own body as her vineyard. My own vineyard I have not kept. And this will be a reoccurring metaphor used even when they get into the kind of passion of lovemaking. They will describe their relationship as a vineyard or garden. Then they will describe parts of their body as parts of the garden. So it's kind of a colorful, poetic way to kind of describe what they're doing. So just keep in mind when fruit and vineyard are used, they're often talking about their very body parts. But in this case, she's very insecure about her body. I don't like these wrinkles. I don't like this color. I don't like how I'm shaped. And so part of what God calls us to do in marriage is to realize that our insecurities are going to come out. So how do we take the grace of God and begin to speak to the insecurities and hurts and pains of those that we care about? How do we affirm them? How do we make them feel beautiful? How do we let them know they're attractive to us? And you'll see him do that in a moment. The reason I say we need to renovate the culture's view on this is because the culture has put messages into our head on every typical subject. It's going to just drive us crazy. I mean, the Bible's vision of marriage is one man and one woman for life. And that's always been countercultural. <laughs> Some cultures, people didn't like the one. <laughs> it's like, well, how about we go one man and a hundred wives and exploited women? And the Bible's countercultural. Other cultures, there were times in which the one man, one woman was countercultural because it was like some cultures demonized men, like Ephesus and Artemis. Men were shoved down. And the Bible elevated men and women as partners, and it challenged that culture. Other cultures, women were stomped all over the place. And again, this challenge it might bring up to, we're both at the same level. We're going to see in this book that the men and women are both initiators, both responders, both confident, both part of this partnership. However, you will notice that the woman talks twice as much as the man. <laughs> might be a lesson in there. So the Bible is always counterculture and it challenges us to say, how do I take God's truth about what beauty is, about what intimacy is? How do I also recognize that when you hear God's ideal, you should be humbled? You can all say, yeah, 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 I know somebody who's not practicing that one man, one woman because of divorce or because of whatever. And you get arrogant. I would just encourage you, you fall short of God's ideal. We all fall short of God's ideal, whether it's through divorce or mistakes we made or whether it's for lustful thoughts. We both hold up the ideal and we graciously, humbly recognize that we don't hold the ideal. And so we show grace to people while we're holding it up. 
I was talking to a, a couple recently, and they'd come in in really kind of a dire circumstance, kind of heading toward divorce, and I said, listen, if you will do a few things over the next six weeks, we can radically turn this around. And we talked about meditating on each other's strengths. We talked about physical intimacy. They weren't quite ready for that, but some ways we could begin to unpack that as a conversation point. It could become a, a topic, not just a talk. And as we were talking together, they both said in different ways, man, I'm just amazed at some of the, the messaging I got from the church growing up. Intimacy just happened automatically. It shouldn't be something you talk about or it's dirty. All that stuff is still affecting me today in my 50s. I've got to untangle myself from the culture, even the religious culture's bad views on this subject. And we all have insecurities. I mean, as I've been losing my hair, it's like I look in the mirror, I don't look like what I think I look like. It's weird. I've never been one to be insecure about my looks, but I'm like, you know, it's strange when you look in the mirror and you don't see yourself. I still write down on the, those little pamphlets for the government, what's your hair color? Blonde. I still write blonde. I don't think I've been blonde in 30 years. I went, to, uh, I went to volleyball, uh, I was down in uh, Florida about six years ago, and I was playing volleyball, and I walk up on the, on the beach, and there are these guys who've been lifting weights, you know. They haven't put their arms down in 20 years. Hey, yeah. I said, hey, can I play some volleyball? They look at me like, you? <sighs> One game, I guess. And so they go over, and these guys, I mean, they're tattooed, they're muscled, they work out, they're incredible. And so they said, well, who do you want? And I picked the scrawny guy to be on my team. So it was me and the scrawny guy, a friend of theirs, against the two of them. And they are just as arrogant as ever. I'm a really good volleyball player. We started playing. And I killed him. I crushed him. I shoved that ball through their blocks, down their throat. It was a beautiful, godly thing, let me tell you. <laughs> I got done. They said, wow, good game. As I'm walking away... A new group comes up, and I hear them say, man, you should have seen the old guy. The old guy. I assume they were talking about somebody else. But again, as we get older, as we get into the context of marriage, where we are exposed, literally and figuratively, to who we really are, it's a place that we need to really re-message ourselves to what's true from the Bible, not from our culture. Which speaks to the third one, which is how do we communicate to our spouse's needs and our spouse's insecurities? It's a very important part of healing in marriage, extending grace in marriage, taking a hurting marriage and making it more hopeful and healed, a good marriage and moving it to great, is we need to learn how to communicate to our spouse's needs and to their insecurities. That's what happens here. Remember, she just said, I'm feeling insecure. Do not look upon me because I am dark. And she, same verse we had before, the sun tanned me because my brothers and I, I haven't kept my own vineyard. I don't like how I look. Then she says, and now we're going to start, again, she's kind of naked now before him, and she's kind of this kind of bedroom talk going on. This is why it's so hard to interpret. Many people think, and now for something completely different, they're talking about walking around in the, in the hills. I think they're kind of using the fact that he's a shepherd, and they're kind of doing the seek find thing as, as bedroom talk, is my take. So she says, tell me, oh you whom I love, where can I find you? Where can I feed your flock? Where you make it rest at noon? And why should I be as one who veils herself? You know, I don't have to veil myself anymore. I want to be with you. I want to be near you. How do I find you by the flocks of your companions? I want to be near you. I want to be close to you. We spent so many years apart. You know, where you were out with your flocks and doing kingly duties, we're now together. How do I find you? And he says, if you do not know a Pharisee woman, I'm here. Follow the footsteps right in here to your flock. Feed your little goats right here before me. Beside the shepherd's sense. I've compared you, my love, to my filly among the Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments and your neck with chains of gold. Now, you're hearing this kind of bedroom talk between the two of them. You might be like, I don't think that would work with my wife. Come here, Philly. Come on over here. Right? That is probably not going to go over well. 
But it's actually in that culture, an agricultural community, uh, a a cattle raising, so to speak, community uh, of animals, he's saying something actually pretty, um, pretty direct. So in he talks about Pharaoh's chariots here. So imagine Pharaoh's chariots, most commentators believe, were, were pushed forward by um, stallions, big male powerful stallions. And he's saying, imagine a little beautiful filly, a feminine filly, a female horse in the middle of all those stallions. You're like that. You may feel insecure. You stand out to me. You stand out from a crowd. In, in a crowd filled with, with stallions and, and beauty, man, you catch my attention. More than that, it's kind of an arousal thing. Can you imagine you put a little filly horse amongst all the stallions? What happens? That's a lot of aroused stallions, right? He's saying, you arouse me, basically. I'm aroused by you. I think you're beautiful. You stand out. I love the look of your cheeks. He begins to seduce her with his words before he seduces her with his body. So again, aren't real people there, but the chorus of the Broadway show, the voice of truth sings out, we're going to make you ornaments of gold and studs of silver. Yes, let's make ourselves beautiful in the midst of this. So then Shulamite, Mrs. Solomon says, and here's again, she gets a little more erotic here, but, but it's never crude. It's also always beautiful, even though it's direct. When the king was at his table tonight, before dinner, I was thinking about you, thinking about being here right now. The spike nerd sends forth its fragrance. I got pheromones coming off me. I know it attracts you. Like when you smell flowers, you draw near to it to smell it. I know my body's attractive to you. I know I'm drawing you in the same way the spike nerds do. A bundle of myrrh is, is before me that lies all night between my breasts. So again, I want you close to me. I've got some perfume on or I've got some myrrh that I hold with me. I want you between my breasts. I want you next to my body. It's, it's kind of very colorful but poetic bedroom talk, pillow talk, so to speak. And this lies all night between my breasts. My beloved to me is, is like henna blooms in the vineyards of En Gedi. I've shown lots of videos over the years of En Gedi, but it's this gorgeous, gorgeous garden right in the middle of the desert down by the Dead Sea. It's just amazing that there can be this beautiful fountain of gardens in the middle of desert. It's, it's, it's saying we want our life, our marital life, in the middle of the desert of the challenges that go on to be a beautiful garden that we cultivate and grow with one another. Just to give you a picture of kind of what some of those images she just referenced are, there's the smell of myrrh, there's the smell of spikenard, this beautiful metaphor of the garden, here's the henna blooms. And again, as you see a flower, what happens when you see a beautiful flower? You say, hey, let's get close to that and smell it, right? I want to get near that, I want you near me, that's the idea that they're going for here. I want you to draw in, I know you're attracted to me, I know I'm attracted to you, let's be together. So the beloved says, this is Solomon, you are fair, my love. You're like, well, nice bedroom talk, honey. There's average and you're fair. No, so in that language, it's not saying the fair was just to be beautiful, to be wonderful, delightful. In the Hebrew, fair is a really high compliment. Behold, you are fair. You are beautiful. I know you're insecure about you. You're attractive to me. You stand out to me. In fact, you have dove's eyes. Now, doves were known in that culture to be a bird that actually had one mate for life. So it's kind of like saying, honey, when I look into your eyes, I see purity, I see loyalty, I see the person I want to be with in my life. We have that kind of one love relationship. That's the idea. It's also amazing, too, as you kind of get in marriage, you begin to fight with one another. Sometimes when you're fighting, you're slamming doors or whatever it is you're doing, and you're never really looking at each other, seeing the hurt that might be causing, hurting, seeing the pain, but to really look into each other's eyes. To connect, not just bodily, but to connect soulishly and spiritually is kind of this idea here. And then she paints a picture of their bedroom chambers like a garden. She responds, she says, you are handsome, my beloved, yes, pleasant. 
our, our bed is like, is like green grass. And, and the beams of the house are like cedar trees on top of us. And our rafters are like fir. It's like we brought the garden, God's garden of Eden, God's eventual garden. We brought a little piece of paradise into this moment. We're reconnecting. We're re-nourishing. We're recultivating our relationship in this moment. I had a guy uh, years ago, we were studying through this book, and he's like, you know what, I heard you're going to do Song of Solomon. Oh, my goodness, that sounds like poetry. I hate poetry. I do not want to learn poetry for five weeks. It was ten weeks last time. It was only five this time. I got done with the series. He's like, I said, so what would you think? He's like, Song of Solomon is my favorite book of the Bible now. <laughs> really? Suddenly a big fan of poetry. Yeah, so he just didn't realize there was a book that so could celebrate erotic and passionate love and yet also challenge us to prioritize each other in ways that we necessarily don't. All right, so here's how it ends. And it even gets more, more erotic as they kind of build up the culmination here on the first night. So having heard words from her husband speaking to her needs and insecurities, she's like, you know what, you know, I kind of am like the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valleys. Now look at this rose. This is what the rose in Israel looked like. A little different than our roses. It's a beautiful flower. It's a unique flower. It's a distinct flower. And you might look at it and say, still wrinkled. Still not as beautiful as other flowers. See, she's not comparing herself. She's saying, you know what? I may not look like other people look, but I've got a distinct beauty, she's saying. And hearing my husband affirm me, it reminds me I have a distinct beauty. I'm like the rose of Sharon. And he, he builds on that. He says, yeah, you're like a lily among thorns. Everyone else looks like a thorn to me compared to you. So is my love among the daughters. So she comes back and says, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so my beloved among the sons. And again, apple trees in the, in the Middle East were a little different from our apple trees. This is what an apple tree looked like there. It's called a citron. So again, she's describing him, his body, describing him, describing the metaphor of the garden of their relationship, the garden of their bodies, and as they're growing closer and closer to one another. Then as they kind of build a culmination, she says, I sat down in his shade, that's kind of an induendo to be with him, with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And then, again, there aren't people in the room. She kind of calls out for the reader and for anyone to hear, man, this is good stuff that God has for us. Man, I'm glad I waited for marriage. Man, I'm glad that I'm cultivating this. She calls out to the voice of truth. He brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me is love. Oh, sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. And it even gets more erotic here. Now, it doesn't look erotic because it says his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. So you're like, okay, left hand under my head, and right hand embraces me. All right, it's a passionate kiss. Well, it's actually more than that. The word embraces in Hebrew is actually more like fondles or caresses. Solomon uses this exact same word in Proverbs when he says, Why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman, a, a prostitute, and be embraced, same word, in the arms of seductress? He's not saying don't go get hugs from prostitutes. <laughs> He's saying don't get caressed by a prostitute. The same word here, what she is saying is when I'm laying in bed next to my husband, he puts his left hand under my head, and with his right hand, he's caressing my whole body. And this is actually a, a phrase that would be used by Jewish fathers to teach their Jewish sons how to prepare for marriage. <laughs> They'd kind of say, come here, boy. All right, tell you what, if you do what comes naturally, uh-huh, 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 it's not going to work out well for her. Huh? So they would actually use this verse of the Bible, it shows up several times in the book, and talk about how to lay next to your wife, how to put your hand under her, her, her head, your left hand under her head, and to use your whole right, right hand to, to basically caress her entire body. 
As science shows and experience probably tells you that you know, women typically need 15 to 20 minutes of direct contact. And this was a technique that was taught from the Bible by Jewish fathers to Jewish sons so they could be generous and other-centered in their lovemaking. I shared this 18 years ago, and a guy in our church, a good friend of mine, he said, man, my son's about to get married. He and his wife are both virgins, and I think I'm going to try and have that talk. I said, well, I've had everything I'm sharing here today I've talked with my kids about since they were 8th grade, ninth grade, so it's kind of the level of clarity that we brought. And uh, he said, I'm going to try it. So he and his son sat down. He kind of talked about kind of the best way to be generous and other-centered in the bedroom. And his uh, son got married. They went off on the honeymoon, came back, and he had lunch with his dad. And his dad said, all right, so I asked. I said, oh, what? I said hey, son. How'd it go? He just said, thanks, Dad. <laughs> so again, it's this idea that we're, we're, it's, we live in such a crazy culture. The culture we live in today is so crazy because we can imagine anyone making love with anyone except married people who are committed to each other. That's gross. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that's the culture we live in today. Versus the Bible just affirms us and esteems us. So here's my challenge to you as we end today. I want you to try and maintain the fuel of marital flame. If you've let the flame die out, if there's not enough logs in the fire, if you're not really taking time to think about your spouse's strengths, to reject those lies that are making you always insecure and just creating an inability to be, to be naked emotionally and physically before someone, let's begin to renovate. And then in the midst of that, how do we communicate to those we love, to their insecurities, to their needs, their need for respect or appreciation or attention? Now, how do you do that? You're like, well, listen, my tank is drained. My flame is small. Maybe they need to go first. And they're saying the same thing. No, they need to go first. We, we maintain the fuel of marital flame by identifying and prioritizing our spiritual needs of our spouse. But we do it not because they deserve it, though they probably do. Not because we even want to, if your marriage is really hurting right now. It's because Jesus did the same thing for you. Jesus saw you with all of your weaknesses and all of your secrets and all of your mistakes, and as the ultimate bridegroom, he said, I see you in your sins, and I can see you what you would look like fully redeemed as a joint heir of Christ. So he came and he kept seeing you what you could become, what you could be, what you could be a fully washed bride of Christ. And because Jesus saw you that way, and even now as Christians, when we invite God into our life, he sees us fully washed, we say, if God can see me that way, I want to see my spouse that way. Number two, Jesus came into a culture that had all kinds of crazy views on intimacy. And he continually found ways to renovate people's thinking, to enjoy the pleasures of intimacy without kind of ending up in a ditch. And yet if you did end up in a ditch, he said, listen, let's dig that out. That's a big root there. Man, the root of something happened to you. The root of having something you did. No root is too deep that we can't dig this out together. I got some fertilizer we can put on that. I got some, and you're like, yeah, I got plenty of fertilizer in my life. You're like, yeah, listen. This is going to be the kind that heals. And we're going to grow something new into your life. And lastly, Jesus is a master of communicating to our needs. You see, at great cost to himself, he said, your need for forgiveness, your need for being blessed by God is higher than my need to not be crucified. And so the call of the Christian is to crucify yourself daily and say, how do I prioritize the needs of someone else? And how do I share my own needs? Because to love God is a, a high calling. I also need to love others as I love myself. It's okay to share your own needs and also to hear your spouse's needs and have a mutual adapting. And we just together start to fuel the flame that God has for us. 
For the next five weeks, we're going to study the book. We'll have one week off for, the, for our foodie series. It's going to happen here. It's happening at our exploring service. But it's going to be a challenging series. It's going to be a fun series. We're going to laugh together. But also it's going to really challenge us to what it looks like to not coast, but to cultivate our marriage together. Let's pray. Father, I just confess how often I fall short of continuing to woo my spouse the way I should. Father, show us a vision of you as the ultimate bridegroom, the ultimate responsive bride as the church, and teach us, Father, how to fan the flame of intimacy with you and with our spouse. In Jesus' name, amen.